Late last year, while knocking around on the internet one night, I came across a long series of posts originally published on 4chan, an anonymous message board. They described a sinister global power struggle only dimly visible to ordinary citizens. On one side of the fight, the posts explained, was a depraved elite bound by unholy oaths and rituals, secretly sowing chaos and strife to create a pretext for their rule. On the other side was the public, we the people, brave and decent but easily deceived, not least because the news was largely scripted by the power brokers and their collaborators in the press. And yet there was hope, I read, because the shadow directorate had blundered. Aligned during the election with Hillary Clinton and unable to believe that she could lose, least of all to an outsider, it had underestimated Donald Trump as well as the patriotism of the U.S. military, which had recruited him for a last-ditch battle against the psychopathic deep state spooks. The writer of the 4chan posts who signed these missives, Q, invited readers to join this battle. He, she, it, promised to pass on orders from a commander and intelligence gathered by a network of spies. I was hooked. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, September 18th, 2018, and today for 42 Minutes, we're going to reconnect with synchronicity by considering the newest work from Walter Kern, entitled The Stones, The Crows, The Grass, The Moon. After the utter grief of taking his mother off life support, Walter Kern is compelled to understand his recurring visions of a Native American holy site. With his children and girlfriend, he follows them. In opening himself up to the mysticism he sees in religion, music, and nature, Walter discovers something magical and transcendent solidarity and solace in the world around him. Walter Kern is the New York Times bestselling author of Blood Will Out, the true story of a murder, a mystery, and a masquerade, and his novels Thumbsucker and Up in the Air were both made into major films. His work has appeared in GQ, Esquire, and the New York Times Magazine. He is also he also writes the Easy Chair column in Harper's every other month or so. We spoke to him for 42 minutes in December of 2016 for episode number 253, and that was a much different time then. We're happy to have him back today. How have you been, Walter? I've been well. I mean, I, I, I've been uh, consumed by uh, my fascination, you know, with new chaos, uh, and uh, I guess when I'm stimulated and entertained even morbidly i'm pretty happy <laughs> well so this show does a book uh like a seasonal book club and something that i guess i didn't realize but um this past spring our book was infinite jest and in doing some research about that book i learned that you're part of the history of that book a little bit and i found this out from a movie I think it was called The End of the Tour or something like that. But yeah. you wrote the initial one of the initial reviews of Infinite Jest back in 1996? Yeah, I mean, if I'm going to, you know, make a semi-legend of the uh, incident, uh, 
you know, David Foster Wallace had written Infinite Jest, uh, you know, this sort of magnum opus, this postmodern, you know, shaggy dog of a giant novel. And it had been not well reviewed uh, when I, as the reviewer at New York Magazine, gave it, I think, its first and kind of gateway uh, good review. And th- that moment's memorialized in the movie about uh, Foster Wallace's book tour. You know, I, I like to think that I, you know, saw something in it before others did, sort of, you know, launched it on its way as a new American classic. As a reviewer f- for New York Magazine, how much time did they give you to spend with that book? I mean, you really kind of were able to capture the essence in the review. How, m- how much time did you have to crank that out? Not enough, never enough. Um, you know, absurdly little, um, probably two or three days or maybe more than that. You know, it was, it's hard to account for your time when you have to delve into a book like that. Um, you know, I probably read it dawn to dusk, you know, consecutively for a few days and, you know, and I had to fly by the seat of my pants and saying what I thought it meant uh, to the culture and in its own, uh, text. But, uh, you know, it made up for all the times that I, as a reviewer, had to sort of slay um, novels in their cradle or, you know, get down on things that I thought were, you know, not adequate. So so having having a chance to push a book that I think I was right to push and history agrees, uh, you know, was really quite a privilege. And then have you have you read it since then? I can't say I've read more than a few pages of it at a time. Um, And when I have, I've sort of wondered at my, uh, you know, wondered retrospectively at my ability to um, summarize it (laughs) after, you know, my first quick reading. Yeah. Well, let's then jump from 1996 to, let's, let's go to 2006, where you're writing a work for Slate, you're you're creating a novel or a novella where um, part of the participation is the reader is clicking links. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, this is probably the the, the sloppiest, messiest, and least known of of you know my published books. It's called The Unbinding. It, it, I wrote it in 2006 for Slate as a serial novel on the web. I included hyperlinks. We thought hyperlinks were very cool back then. We thought they were going to, you know, change fiction and, you know, narrative art. And the uh, Unbinding was a story about surveillance and paranoia and government uh, infiltration of, of of everybody's daily lives. And and it was written as a kind of, you know, lark a use of new technology. And I, I, I think, you know, I hate to hate it when authors say this, but I think I really channeled it. Um, it didn't make a lot of surface sense, but I think it captured what was to come in terms of, you know, in terms of sort of sinister aspects of technology. It's very readable. And then I think, so I'm reading... Uh, the Kindle version, and I don't think the hyperlinks are live in that. But are the the bold script the ones that would have been? Well, yeah, in the you know they they published a they published a, a printed version of the Unbinding, and the hyperlinked material is 
in bold print there. I don't know if that really adds to anything. Um, the whole, like I say, the whole thing, you know, was a, was a experiment and didn't pretend to be, uh, elegantly coherent. Um, but, uh, you know, there was a sense in 2006, and now this is before the iPhone, Facebook, you know, Twitter, that, you know, a dark fog of technological, you know, fear was coming. And, 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 and I tried to deal with that up front. And um, I, I think I've been proven so abundantly prophetic that, you know, I, I can say that without blushing. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because I think Dave Eggers does something similar, but maybe like, I don't know, almost 10 years later after Twitter, Facebook, and all the things that did intrude into our lives. And and my take on The Unbinding is, as far as I've read, it's it's quite readable. It's 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 delightful, actually. So uh, I, re- <laughs> I recommend it to the audience. I'm- I mean, if, if, if I was going to encapsulate the book, it's about the separation of personhood and identity. You know, it's narrated by a person who doesn't exist, an internet entity with a name, which I think is what we're becoming <laughs> as individuals. Well, I, so I guess the interesting thing on this show is, and it's been coming up lately, is this space between our internet life and our real life and how there's... Mm-hmm how there's bleed over now and how scary it is. So I, the, the uh, thing that comes to mind is Pizzagate where it seemed like this is where the kind of speculative fictions that take place on the internet came into real life, you know? And so this is what you explore in your, your easy chair about uh, QAnon, but you're you're exploring the, could you explain that to people who are not familiar with QAnon? Speculative fiction and the news are becoming indistinguishable. That's the, that, that's the um, premise of that calm on Q. Now, Q, uh, Anon, or Q, is a nickname for a anonymous poster on the internet who purports to be some uh, higher up in Trump's close circle who's giving intelligence to, you know, to Trump's fan base about about his next moves as he fights for you know all that's honorable. Um, now, people who hate Trump can't imagine that anyone uh, envisions him as a sort of s- sneaky superhero, you know. Um, uh, but that's how Q would frame him, and I, I found that fascinating because he was, you know, this. this the site was attracting a huge following at the same time Trump was being, you know, dismissed, you know, as a boob insane, you know, a, a coming Hitler and all these other negative things. I guess the, the thing, the fascinating thing to me is that people need meaning and belief in their life. We need mythologies to give our lives meaning and therefore we mythologize we've had two years of mythological narratives as far as i'm concerned one is taken seriously by the establishment the mueller russia investigation 
which um, I would submit is becoming um, almost ridiculous. Uh, There is also the myth of uh, Q's myth of of Trump's um, vast cunning. And these competing conspiracy theories seem to almost dominate the news. Um, We get served up a new installment of, you know, Trump's going to get it almost every day in certain publications. And in the darkest margins of the internet, we get this theory that Trump is boxing the man and going to prove the establishment all wrong. Um, you know, I, we're in a real wilderness, and, and I think people underestimated uh, just how strange it is. I haven't followed Q at all. I mean, vaguely aware of it, but I'm. Have you stayed up to date with it? Well, it's it's almost impossible to stay up to date with it after a point. I mean, it's it's kind of like I say, it's serial TV drama uh, on the dark web, and you know, it's it's preposterous, it's um, alarming, it's um, it's sort of Nostradamus-like in the sense that it's suggestive, but but maybe phony. <laughs> But probably phony. Um, but 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 where it's at right now is that Trump's going to pull some uh, big rabbit out of his hat before before the congressional elections, and uh, you know the world is going to be rocked by him again. Um, you know, Q they they call it hopium on uh, on four chan. You know, Q gives uh, hopium to the mass. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, considered as fiction, which you you did, it, it's it's highly readable and addictive, or just it's super compelling. Well, considered as okay, so the re, so the way I wrote about it was from the perspective of my own attempt to write a inter, you know a serial internet narrative, and I said, listen, I tried it. I tried to write a novel online, you know, every couple of days, posting you know on Slate, and Q is doing the same job better is is more gripping more uh you know engrossing uh more imaginative Uh, you know listen fact and fiction i mean it's fashionable to say they overlap but this might be the year that they just merged and that sounds really cynical of me to to, you know uh over post-truth you know learn to deal with fake news and accept it but I'm not sure that I have more to offer than, than, you know, choose your path through this enchanted forest now. I mean, I don't think I understand uh, what's grounding us. Um, when we last spoke, we talked about truth. I mean, but I think we are speaking basically before, you know, we knew what Trump was, but we had no idea what was coming. And you you spoke about the establishment and how there is this kind of class system with, you know, the reporters and the politicians all went to the same schools and stuff. I think under Trump, we're experiencing a class war um, masquerading as a culture war. Uh, I I really do. I I think um, we're experiencing a division in America between people who are um, stuck and people who 
think they're cruising toward, you know, big solutions. And, uh, you know, I, I refuse to let this become an occasion for hating my fellow American, the Trump years. Uh, I just refuse. We're, we're all going to still be here when they're over. We're going to all have to work together and be together. Um, and so I'm trying to resist just simple resisting. Yeah, there is like some hardcore kind of othering going on in the polarization where I don't know. <laughs> it's a, it's a yeah, yeah yeah. You know the problem is the problem is sort of uh, moral duty. You know some people have solemnly decided that it's their moral duty to sort of um, uh, fight back in a way that's almost unprecedented. And, and, and I don't quite agree with them. Uh, I don't see democracy uh, as threatened by Trump. Uh, Trump is a product of democracy un, unbound. Um, you know, that someone like Trump could win is not, you know, uh, a testament to some kind of, you know, autocratic drift. It's, it's a testament to like a kind of absurd democratic uh, spin of the wheel that, that, that came up on a very weird spot. So one of the interesting things that Infinite Jest does is kind of, it also predicted our moment where we're kind of like this meaningless alienation, this like over uh, entertained moment where and, and super you know commercialized if we if we shift a little bit and then talk about yeah. the uh is it the bighorn medicine wheel i've never heard of this what is this thing well the bighorn medicine wheel you know yeah to to, to do a hard turn away from political entertainment um the bighorn medicine wheel is an ancient structure in the mountains of northern Wyoming, uh, shaped like a kind of uh, wheel with spokes made of white stones and, and highly sacred to um, the Indians of the northern plains. It was built hundreds of years ago up on a very high mountain plateau, and uh, it figures in the little book I wrote recently. Do you have any sense of what, how they used it or what it was for? Well, it's one of those Stonehenge-like, um, you know, structures where uh, supposedly it aligns with, you know, constellations and, 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 you know, sunrise and sunsets at certain times of year. It's, it's a calendar, you know, as, as rationalists interpret it. But really, it's a place people go to honor their ancestors on a kind of on all kinds of pilgrimages and, and we, we don't know really who made it or what it means. Well, so this book that you're talking about, the, uh, the stones, the crow, the, the grass, the moon, it's really interesting to me because you, you wrote a little bit about this in an easy chair before about, you know, I think it was your standing rock, um, mm -hmm. moment, but in this one, you really detail how, at some point in time, you really began to live your life by synchronicity. Like, really, in a big way, you kind of 
are showing how you're making a lot of your decisions based on kind of what the universe was telling you. Yeah, you know, I, I guess the headline of this interview could be this. I've kind of withdrawn from a secular understanding of, you know, what's going on politically and so on, and started to rebuild an older sense of what reality entails. You know, I, I'm, I'm withdrawing from the fray in this book and as a result, really, of my mother's um, death and showing what it's like to reconstruct your, you know, the way you engineer reality, or the way you understand reality. Um, you know, like I, I think it's a time to go back to fundamentals or, I don't know, origins or, you know, primordial intuition. And, and that's what happens in this book. I give myself to that path. And do you feel like that was a moment in, a moment in time, you know, so that you had this deep connection to uh, your mother's spirit and kind of you were being guided by that, you know? Well, through... you know, the, the book in really simple terms is about how, like, um, my mother died. I, I had to help her pass, you know, um, in a way that's kind of gruesome and, you know, very contemporary. And uh, then clothes started appearing in my life and other kind of visitations from the uncanny. And, and, and I started to think in a whole new way of things. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, writing about the mystical could probably, is probably not, you know, uh, at the moment, very uh, advisable. You know, everybody wants to fight it out on issues and policies, and headlines. Um, but going into some neo-hippie trance, it, you know, isn't something I, uh, I see recommended. But, but, but that's what happened. That's what I did. Uh, have you ever been to a Burning Man? No, I haven't been to a Burning Man. You know, Burning Man was just last week. Uh, I was at uh, Standing Rock encampment during Burning Man a couple of years ago. And during, over the last few days, I, I've been in New Mexico on a Apache reservation at a ceremonial feast and foot race. Um, so I, I, I've been doing, you know, Burning Man equivalents, uh, I guess. <laughs> but 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 a little rougher around the edges, really. You know, um, I mean, gosh, I, I, I'm ashamed of myself at this time where we're so concerned with cultural appropriation to say, you know, I'm spending all this time on Native American uh, studies, white boy studies, but I am. That, that's where I found myself in life. You know. Well, I read a fair amount of. Joseph Campbell in my early 30s and I think he's kind of frowned upon nowadays too because maybe he wasn't as as scholarly as people thought but well there was a there was a there was a tint of fascism to Joseph Campbell and to and to all those mythological you know cartographers who kind of believed there were essential uh myths that you know make us who we are you know in other words that 
that lent itself to nationalism sometimes and to sort of, you know, uh, populist, folkloric, you, you know, fascist tendencies. But the interesting thing is, is, if you take that to, you know, its heart, then uh, if the mythology is connected to the physical land, then you need to go to the land, to, you know, to d determine who you are. And you're kind of saying that's what you're doing. You know, you're seeing. Yeah, I, I, I am, man. I'm, I'm in full flight from the digital. Um, it, it, it frightens me no end. I, I think the ultimate confrontation, uh, sort of existential confrontation that technology forces on us is the struggle over our own stories. Do we get to tell our own stories? Do we get to live our own freely chosen way? Or are we going to be data mined to death, predicted, exploited, manipulated, and nudged? You know, that's the choice. That's, you're, you're, our machines are either going to make us over or we're going to retain the right to make our journeys. And right now we're losing. <laughs> and I'm trying to gain background. Hmm. I think, so the, the other interesting angle on this is people with children, uh, especially the ones that are fully, uh, what do they call them, digital natives, the ones that have grown up in right, the, right. You know, and right. it's, I don't know how, I, I have kids and I, I don't have any sense, you know, about delay of gratification or any of it, just because they're swimming around in, in the in the digital stew. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, to get back to poli dreaded politics, I think that the story of the Trump years, the narrative, the, the, the driving tale of Trump is technologically uh, assisted. In other words, the way we get our news pushed to our phones keeps us on this like treadmill, uh, this propulsive treadmill uh, of, of headlines and expectations and outrages. Um, and I, I actually think that the, you know, the narrative of public life is, is, is a serial drama on our telephones. <laughs> Um, and you know, any, any attempt or, you know, to get away from that is interesting to me now. Hmm. What about, so uh, ayahuasca, it seemed like this is something, so anything that disrupts, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I should, I should be the perfect customer for the ayahuasca, um, movement. Michael Pollan wrote like so it's so strange you know like we're it seems like you know other people are disrupting this digital <laughs> reality also so he wrote a book about considering lsd you know uh right different states of consciousness and reconnecting to something other than this hard and fast materialistic reality well, you know, and, 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 you know, just as he ushered in a kind of era of slow food and locavore eating, I think with this uh, book about psychedelic drugs, he's, you know, uh, heralding uh, an experimental period um, where we're going to, you know, it's been 10 years since we got the iPhone. It's been 10 years since we got 
the iPhone with Facebook. Uh, I think we're reviewing. <laughs> I think we're changing course. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, quite possibly. I, it's, I mean, the other interesting thing in considering uh, like 1996 or 2001 is how mm -hmm. at these different points, you know, what technologies there were, what connected us and, and how encompassing things are or were. Do you remember the first time you saw somebody walking down the street talking on the phone? I mean, I do. I, I remember thinking that looks insane. This person is outside surrounded by reality and they are tunneling into their phone in motion. What? Now I look at a crowd and every head is bowed to a screen. Very few are pointing toward each other. Well, yeah, but then you fast forward a Oh, right. So you're talking about someone walking around on a phone and then it's becoming immersed in the, the phone. But like uh, I, I recall like the first time my wife went to New York to go to some galleries and she was seeing that people couldn't – they couldn't look at the artwork with their eyes. They needed to see it through their phone. They needed that mediation to understand almost like – we're experiencing the world through our phones at this point completely. I, yeah, I remember going to a concert of this sort of like uh, mode, faddish uh, uh, folk singer named Bright Eyes in Spokane, uh, Washington, a few years back. And people were watching him singing on the stage through the phones they were holding before their eyes, like they were watching it through periscopes. Um, and it wasn't, and, and the mediation seemed to make it significant. Uh, it was as though just lived, unfiltered encounters aren't as significant as ones that are recorded or mediated ones. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was another sort of milestone in my awareness of just how profoundly we were changing, you know. To me, it's like the disappearance of the physical and the, the dissolution of place. Mm. I'd be curious to see. So we're like really privileging kind of like the material. There's this, this drive in us to connect and you could just see it in history. I wonder if the same kind of like we have the spiritual yearning, if there's a way to do it's almost the, uh, the unseen internet, this like, and that's synchronicity, the spiritual connection, the perennial philosophy or whatever well you know here's here's how i feel you know on this day you know in a motel room in boulder colorado after having been to this ritual feast um i'm by alienating myself from how we do things now i'm starting to get a sense of how we do things i'm starting to see it from an angle and and uh the project that we all seem embarked upon is um, moving into, you know, this new dimension, you know, <laughs> getting on a spaceship, <laughs> you know, taking off. And, uh, but there's still a world out here and, you know, there's still a past and there's still, you know, deep structures, you know, myth and meaning and experience. And 
we're abandoning them pell-mell. Um, that, you know, as I aware, as I'm aware of it. Well, so one of the points on your journey is when you found your mother's Bible and then you're, mm -hmm. you're reading it through her eyes because she annotated it. Were you mm -hmm. able to derive meaning from both the historical story as well as the annotations or, you know, what was that experience like? So, yeah, my mother died suddenly and she hadn't been a religious woman, but she had been a big reader. And I found a study Bible in which she'd been making annotations for decades, seemingly. I mean, in all kinds of tiny writing and different colors. And, and so I, I, I started reading that Bible, which, uh, you know, from the beginning uh, and writing about my reactions. And they were twofold. One, the, the strangeness of our founding text, you know, just overwhelmed me because I was pretty new to it. Um, you know, the characters in the Bible, the way of storytelling, everything was just gloriously strange to me. Uh, I also felt like I was mm, consorting with my mother, you know, by, by, by reading her thoughts on, the different episodes. And uh, I, I guess that was another case of sort of going backward to see the present, um, uh, which might be the overall theme of what I'm doing lately. Well, so your, your synchronicity story, this, the stones, the crows, the grass, the moon, in a perfect synchronicity fashion, you really, you have, you deliver a wonderful kind of poignant gotcha at the end, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit about your understanding of time at this point in life? Well, <clears throat> I don't want to spoil it, because I think, I think listeners should should either read it, or, or the audiobook is, is wonderful, too. You actually read it yourself. Time, you know, time, time is a line to technological man. You know, it's the blinking digital... Uh, progression that you see on a stopwatch or your phone. Uh, time, time to the inner being is a circle that brings us around repeatedly to um, familiar yet strange um, locations we've been before. You know, um, or maybe a spiral or a helix. And, and, you know, that, that none of that's profoundly new or, uh, you know, revelatory, but, but I think that's the basic, you know, comparison. And, and I'm spending more time in circular time than, than you know, in, in cyclical time than in, you know, straight ahead uh, digital clock time. Do you think you'll have to abandon some of the the social media at some point? I, I think maybe I've oh. seen, have you tried to swear off it a little bit? Well, I, I you know, I, I, I'm the most um, susceptible to addiction person that I've ever come across. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can get hooked on every new kind of garbage, um, you know, including conspiracy theories on 4chan. Um, so I have minimized my use of Facebook pretty much locked myself out from my own account. And, uh, 
you know, I, I use Twitter, I, but I stay away from Instagram, which to me is the great pernicious engine of envy uh, that, you know, as addictive as anything out there. It's the one that like really bugs me. Um, the replacement of the image of our lives, the replacement of our lives with images, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I hate to say I'm going native. I mean, if, if someone was going to disparage me or make accusations, they'd probably say that. And I'd probably have to plead guilty in certain ways. And, you know, I'm probably repeating a process that, you know, people went through in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, I read all those Carlos Castaneda books when I was a young teenager, and here I am, you know, kind of embarrassingly captive <laughs> to them. <laughs> what about your reading habits? You know, how have they changed since 1996? Do you still read paper books? And what are you reading these days? Well, uh, right, now, right now I'm reading... Travels with Charlie in Search of America by John Steinbeck. Um, it's for a book I'm writing about a two-month road trip I took last spring across the Southwest and the Southern United States. And uh, like the world needed another middle-aged white guy going on a road trip across America, you know, and, uh, you know, spieling out his observations. But that's exactly what I'm going to give you, and you know. Travels with Charlie is an example of it that you know, I have a lot of affection for. And so how long, how long did you say your road trip was? Well, it lasted two months. I didn't get very far in miles. I mean, I got from Las Vegas, uh, uh, Nevada to Wilmington, North Carolina, and then back, not on the same route. Uh, but it took two months, and, and the conceit was I was going to put away my phone um, because I was really feeling addicted to the internet and you know experience life you know in the physical and the personal um no agenda you know a voyage of discovery and that's what i got i got a really weird one and i learned a lot about how journeys unfold and how you know we might have the self-driving cars the, the American road trip, that literary uh, icon, it, it may be endangered. So I took my last road trip, and you know, I'm writing a book about it. Now, do you have to like set out to kind of be an extrovert to meet the the interesting characters, or is that just a product of the road trip? Well, one, you know, it, it's a trip that turned into a real adventure. Uh, it's a trip on which I had a part-time companion, an Afghan, uh, a, a veteran of the uh, Afghanistan uh, war who is afflicted with very bad PTSD. Um, so there's a kind of a, a buddy element to the story. But um, I didn't have to be uh, outgoing, you know, to go on a road trip. In fact, I was internal. Uh, you know, moving along in my car let me be solitary. You know, it was kind of a case of, you know, Walden on wheels. Uh, I, uh, I wasn't there to chat, you know, with, you know, with every local or get all the offbeat, uh, histories of places. I, I was there to think while moving and that's what I did. Hmm. I mean, it seems like 
that motion is you know part of the the American mythology too. Well, but it, it's interesting. You know, you you th- we thought the car and you know restlessness and driving toward the frontier was the essential um, component of the American character, but technology is stalling that whole uh, impulse, and we're becoming extremely sedentary. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, we're going to let the cars drive themselves while we check email. Um, that seems to be where, you know, the gypsy American spirit is ending up. So, you know, I, I, I'm serious when I say, I think that part of us may be coming to a halt. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You bet. You've been listening to Walter Kern on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out his website at walterkern.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows. Just subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. As currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free, we also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much, and now for a better story with higher themes, a bracing epic of recovery that the Dark Wizards have shown us how to write. It sounds like that's what we're doing, too. So. <laughs> I'm trying my best. <laughs>